Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We continue our study in Ephesians, and we find ourselves here at the end of chapter 6, where we have been seeing the heavenly reality of the exalted Christ. We have proclaimed that the exalted Christ is the one who sits above every ruler and authority and principality, every power and world forces of this darkness. And he guarantees to us the victory through his life, death, and resurrection. It is that Christ has clothed us in himself so as to equip us for this age and further fit us and even preserve us for heaven. It's here at the end of chapter 6 that Paul explains the extensive arrangements the Lord has made to protect his people. To protect his people against the enemy's attack. It is our loving God who that is aware, he is aware of our frailty and is aware that we are made of dust. He has created Magnificent provisions for every one of his blood-bought offspring, while knowing how frail and defenseless we are. William Grunall writes this in his vast and thorough commentary on the Christian's armor. He says, in heaven we shall appear not in armor, but in garments of glory. But here they are to be worn night and day, and we must walk, work, and sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Jesus Christ. Ian Hamilton, commenting on the Christian's warfare, says that the Christian's warfare with the devil is not episodic. It is perpetual. Certainly there will be evil days of intense warfare, but warfare with the devil is no less present when our times are pleasant and God's blessing are inundating us. The warfare is unceasing. It was for Christ, and it will be for his people. It was for this reason that our Savior counseled his disciples to watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And so here at the end of his letter, Paul sets to show the Ephesians just what they have in order to overcome the evil one, in order to stand firm in the day of testing. And so he tells them not what they need, but what they possess in Christ. Read uh, along as I read Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. The word of the Lord says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, 
with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again. Oh Lord, we ask you this morning that by the power of your spirit, that your word would go forth in truth, that it would not return void upon the hearts and minds of your people, but that you would work in us to be not just hearers of your word, but doers also, that we in this time of listening and learning would find uh, you gracious and merciful to us, enlivening our hearts to serve you with greater fervor now and forevermore. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are reminding ourselves again over and over as it's fitting to do that the primary question in regard to the armor of God isn't how we provide these accoutrements, how we provide these pieces, or at the very least, how we provide these adjectives of these armors, this truth, this righteousness, this gospel of peace, this faith, and this salvation, even this spirit or the word. How, how is it? We don't ask how we provide it. We ask who supplies it. So that understanding who supplies it, we may know that we, and how to possess it, and in possessing it, how it is wielded or how it is put to use for our good, how it is put to use for the furtherance of our faith, the, for the preservation of our bodies or of our souls and of our minds. And so Paul levels out these uh, pieces of armor in such a way that we recognize the position that the girdle or belt of truth plays as its foundational role in, in tying the pieces together that we find that there was, that he talks about the uh, breastplate of righteousness, this alien righteousness that protects us from what could assail us for Christ, who has gone before us, walked perfectly as a man. And we look at the, we've looked at the feet shod with the gospel of peace, rejoicing to understand what it means to have peace with God. And last week we examined the shield of faith, that it was to be seen as the God who protects us and with Christ as the example, that it was to be taken into every day, into every battle, and that it ultimately enables us to advance, that the shield of faith is to be the lead piece of armor so that the Christian dare not step where refuge in God is not found. And this morning we look at the protection of the helmet of salvation. We'll look at it under uh, three headings this morning. It's prior place, it's current place, and it's final place. So the helmet of salvation, it's prior place, it's current place, and it's final place. As it relates to its prior place, we 
keep going back to this understanding as the word directs us that this, this armor is given to us by way of a divine warrior. It is worn, tried, trued, true and tested armor given to us from Christ. And so Paul brings us back to this divine warrior of the Old Testament who battles on behalf of God's people to rescue them from their iniquities. We see that played out in many forms and many types and shadows through the characters or through the historical people of the Old Testament. We mentioned last time Abraham going and rescuing Lot. They're the divine warrior rescuing God's people. We see it very clearly in Joshua's conquest of Canaan. He leads God's people into the promised land. We see it in other places, certainly in David as he leads his people into battle. We saw it, we see it uh, maybe even supremely in David when he goes out alone against Goliath. And so it's no surprise, or it should be no surprise to us, that, that the Spirit picks up on these threads and these themes and, and is bringing them into culmination and bringing them into clear picture as, as uh, revelation of God progresses through Scripture into crystallizing into the person of Christ. And as this uh, Christ figure crystallizes, we find that the prophets do a good job by the way of the Spirit in commenting and using these things of the Old Testament. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 59. It is no coincidence that we keep going back to Isaiah, not just because Paul quotes it, but because of its extensive quoting by Paul and, and other uh, apostles and even Christ that we recognize as we come back to Isaiah, we see it as, or it's known as the fifth gospel. It's the proto-gospel because it speaks and prophesies so clearly of Christ. Isaiah 59 is not an exception. If we look down at verse 9, we see that there is justice Far from us. Therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities." transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself pray. Consider 
these words that the prophet is putting in the voice of the people, in the voice of a people that are repentant and penitent to God, confessing their sins, their, their utter depravity. They're turning from God in all ways. They're becoming like beasts in their sinning, recognizing that their transgressions are not just few, but are multiplied before God. They confess that this is something that they cannot stand, that in this they cannot stand before God. It continues, Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Consider the words of the prophet here, putting in the voice of the Lord by way of, of analogy uh, uh, assigning to him an astonishment that does not exist in God in himself. But as, it re as we relate to God, from us to God, we recognize that in the whole of the people of Israel, there was not one man to stand for them that could stand the bear, the weight of righteousness, the weight of, of holiness due to God. And so we, with joy, I'm sure we read it, and with joy, I'm sure it was prophesied to the people that we read in verse 16, then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares the Lord. Consider the promise here that God will repay those who have done evil. He will have his vengeance. And yet, encased in this uh, proclamation of God's vengeance is hope that there will be people redeemed. For a redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. So that even amongst those that growl like bears, moan sadly like doves, that are, their transgressions are multiplied, we'll find a redeemer. We'll find one who will come in righteousness, who will bear uh, a helmet of salvation. And so the one that they will run and take refuge in. One that we see that as we look at this righteousness as a breastplate, we looked at it as what we saw, the active obedience of Christ. We saw that Christ came and he obeyed the law in thought, word, and deed. His righteousness is the righteousness which now clothes us. But before clothing us, 
It was necessary, as we read in Isaiah 59, for a transgression, for iniquities, for sin to be removed from us. The, the penalty, certainly, of sin to be uh, bear, uh, bore for us. And so I think we can see this in the helmet of salvation. If, breast, if the breastplate of righteousness is in reference to God, Christ's active obedience, I think we can look at the helmet of salvation as it relates to his passive obedience. Christ's passive obedience is his humiliation and suffering. That which happened to him, he, he was acted upon, his humanity was acted upon, and so he suffered in the flesh. And so we recognize that as Christ puts on the helmet of salvation, he, he puts on, uh, he takes up the mantle of what it would require to save a people. That they need to be saved from the wrath of God. They need to be saved from their transgression that were multiplied before a holy and righteous God. And this here, this divine warrior takes on this mantle as a helmet, a helmet of salvation. Turn with me to Psalm 140 as we see its interplay between this helmet of salvation not only being uh, related to Christ's suffering, but as it relates to Christ in his uh, humanity in how he hopes in God. Psalm uh, 140, we read. Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who devise evil things in their heart. Hearts. They continually stir up wars. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purposed to trip up my feet. The proud have, a, have hidden a trap for me and cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set snares for me. Hear the voice of Christ we recognize plays out as we see his interactions with the scribes and Pharisees. The, the Sadducees who tried to trip Christ up by asking him pointed questions, barbed questions that, that would catch him in some wrongdoing, that would catch him in some false teaching. They lay a snare before him. And not only are they looking to catch him so that they may discredit him, but they ultimately are looking to catch him so that they may ensnare him and put him to death. And so here we can even imagine for a moment Christ reading the Psalms and learning as a man his role that the world would be against him. That those he came and sought to save would be the very ones who rejected him. And so he says, I said to the Lord, you are my God. Give ear, O Lord, to the voice of my supplications. O oh God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. This helmet of salvation is prior 
its prior places on the head of our Savior was done as a mantle of humiliation and suffering, whereby he wore it to carry our sins all the way to the cross, to carry in his body the sufferings due to us. And here, its prior place on his head as a strength also, so that it would protect his mind in the day of battle. We think of the prayer at Gethsemane where Christ prays to the Lord to take the cup and ultimately praying that not his will, but the Father's will be done. The Lord submitting all his self to the Father. And I said to the Lord, you are my God, give ear, O Lord, to the voice of my supplication. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. There in Gethsemane, the Lord exemplifies and, and, and prays out these psalms of supplication. But he's supported, he's, he has a strength of salvation. He has a covering of his head. Turn to Psalm 16. What, what, what was then Christ sure? What was his hope? What was he resolute in? Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. He says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me in verse 7. Indeed, my mind instructs me. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of light, life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In how, in what way, we can't know, I think, fully how the Lord prayed in the garden. But I think we can be assured that these things supplicated the Lord or, or supported the Lord in his humanity so that he would take hope that though he would suffer on behalf of his people, suffer grievously, painfully, that he would not be abandoned to Sheol, that his, he would not undergo decay, and he would ultimately know the path of life, that he would uh, be present in that, that he would take our humanity and be present in the fullness of joy at the right hand of the Father on high. We can even turn, we can go one more psalm and see again a prayer of protection. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. 
I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast your paths. My feet have not slipped. Here, the hope of Christ is recognized that God is a just God. That God will uphold the righteous. And so he proclaims with uh, holiness his righteousness. And in verse 13, arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. This is to... Uh, those that seek him harm, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from the men, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your faith and righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Here. The, the word of Christ is proclaiming that his hope is in what could not be seen. His hope was in the time to come. And he contrasts that with the wicked whose hope and portion is only in this life. Their, their appetites are filled with their treasure of this world. They're satisfied with what they can see and not knowing that they, will, that they can take it not with them, it will be left to their children. But here the hope of Christ is a hope in the glory that would be due him on the completion of his work. We can turn quickly back to Isaiah chapter 11 and see this once again foretold. We see in verse 1 of 11, of chapter 11, that well-known verse, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he, his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. His hope will be in that which is not seen. And in that day, in verse 10, as we recognize all the benefits that will come of this one who will conquer all things, bear all things for his people. Then in that day, in verse 10, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. They will take comfort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. This here, Paul, by the Spirit, understands what takes place in the person of Christ as he writes to the uh, Christians in Rome. In Romans chapter 15, it's just one verse. Now may the God, this he, he comes after quoting this part in Isaiah in verse 12. In verse 13, he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here, this is the God of hope. The God of hope who bore us, our, bore our sufferings in his humiliation and in his body. He took upon him the mantle of the helmet of salvation, carrying it to the end, comforted by the truth and hope that God would find him blameless. And so though he would suffer many sufferings, he would come through to the end, body not being left to Sheol, not being left to decay, but being seated at the right hand of the Father on high. This is the prior place of the helmet of salvation, so that we may understand and we look to its current place, that it is upon the head of the believer. This helmet of salvation being upon the head of the believer is to protect the mind with the assurance of the victory of the divine warrior. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he expounds upon this piece of armor by labeling it the hope of salvation. We see that clearly as we read of, of Christ in the Old Testament, that there was a hope that Christ had, a hope in the things to come, a hope in the, in the, in the righteousness and justice of God. This idea of hope is a supernatural grace of God whereby the believer through Christ expects and waits for all those good things of the promise which at present he has not fully received. See, we, the current place of this helmet of salvation is squarely upon the head of the believer. It rests upon us as a comfort to our minds so that our thoughts may not wander from the path of God. They may not wander into despair. They may not consider what we can see and what we can hear, but consider what the Lord has promised. Consider what the Lord has accomplished in Christ. The mind is something referenced often in the New Testament. In Mark 12, 30 in speaking of the greatest commandment, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Our mind is to be engaged in the love of God. Our mind is to be consumed in the love of God. Turn, if you are in Romans, turn to Romans chapter 8. Verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind is set, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not able to to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. The words of the Lord, or the word of the Lord in Romans 8 tells us that we, our minds are important. 
They can be set upon the things of this world or they can be set upon the Spirit of God. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul, in a long discourse, has been recognized on the gospel in, verses, in chapters 1 through 11 in the book of Romans. He turns in verse 12 and says, or chapter 12, verse 1, he turns and says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Here we see the effects of those that put their faith in Christ, that those that have received the gospel as their own, that they would be given a renewed mind. They would not be conformed to this world, conformed to the thinking and patterns of this world. It should come as no surprise to us that this world seeks to garner or censure our speech for they understand that which proceeds from the mouth began in the mind. And so we are not conformed to this world, but be renewed in the mind and so speak truth. Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think, engage your mind on these things. And then likewise, guard your mind from things that are contrary. Consider the cost of, of consuming such things. I direct you not towards a sense of pietism and a sense of isolationism, but I direct you to the word of God to consider such things. Consider scripture's teaching on the mind. Why is there an emphasis on the mind of the believer? It's because a student is not above his teacher. As Christ suffered, so shall we. We bear the helmet of salvation. We have been given to it by our Savior. Why? Because he knows that just as he suffered, so shall we. Peter testified to this by, by the Spirit in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Brothers and sisters, the helmet of salvation on our head, the hope of salvation, the reality that our hope is in what can't be seen and what can't be heard, except that which is seen by the Spirit and heard in the Spirit, is to sustain us and protect our minds 
for we will share in the sufferings of Christ. Not because we have such a need to um, merit our righteousness or to atone for our sins, but because we desire to be like our Savior. And Scripture tells us that he learned obedience through suffering. So we count it all joy. We rejoice, not in the moment, not in the midst of the fiery trial, but having been brought through it, we can rejoice that we have been tested, that we have found to be wearing this helmet of salvation given to us by Christ, and so assuring us of our victory, assuring us of the time to come. William Grinnell says that all pieces are to defend the Christian from sin, none to secure him from suffering. They are to defend him. They are to defend him in suffering, not privilege him from it. He must prepare the more for suffering because he is so well furnished with armor to bear it. Armor is not given for men to wear by the fireside, but in the field. It would be funny to find somebody dressed in a warrior's garb and lounging on a couch. And I say that metaphorically. I plan on lounging on a couch today. But metaphorically, as it relates to our Christian life, we have been given this armor to bear us up in this age for all that the Lord would have us And yes, for the suffering that is ordained for our good, for our conformity to Christ. So that we, in bearing the current place of this helmet of salvation upon our head, would not fall in through our minds to despair. Matthew Poole says, despair to which the devil tempts us, makes us quit our combat. Whereas hope of salvation makes us lift our heads in the midst of temptations and afflictions. You read about these helmets and their, uh, their adornments and how they were worn. And, and you can even go and you can see the different ones. And these are heavy pieces of armor. They were meant to parry a blow from a sword to maybe even protect from the shot of an arrow, to protect our heads from the heads of the soldier from being bludgeoned. But the helmet of salvation weighs not upon us in the way that those medals would have weighed upon those ancient warriors. Our hope of salvation lightens our heads to be lifted up in the midst of temptations and afflictions. so that we have seen the the prior place of this helmet. We recognize that its prior place gives us hope of its current place upon the head of the believer, and yet we may wonder, what is its final place? Its final place is to offer to us that that provision of of Reformed theology the recovery of assurance of salvation, that one day our helmets of war, our 
armor of war will be laid aside and replaced with garments, priestly garments of worship. This is our hope unseen yet. For we all sit here as believers in Christ, clad in his armor, embattled and emboldened in war. And we must know that there is a final place for such armor. Spurgeon, in commenting on assurance, says nobody ever did perish trusting in Jesus. There has not been through all these centuries a single instance of a soul being cast away that came all guilty and held deserving and took Christ to be its salvation. If you perish, you will be the first that perished with his hand laid upon Christ. His love and power can never fail. This is a sinner's confidence. This is our hope of salvation. This is the assurance that one day our helmet will be laid aside for our faith shall be sight. Our hope will be accomplished. Again, Ian Hamilton was helpful for me. He said, Satan is malignantly adept at plying our minds with plausible reasons why our hope before God is built on the shakiest of foundations. Our lives are so full of contradictions and inconsistencies, we experience lapse of faith and failures of trust. And we even fall into grievous sins. Our minds can be besieged with a host of reasons that may rob us of any assurance. What then are we to do? He says, take the helmet of salvation. One man that we can look at who, who did this, not perfectly, but did this in a way that's recognized to, to be uh, entered into the annuals of church history is John Knox. John Knox was born in Haddington, Haddington not far from Edinburgh, of poor but honest parents. In the year 1505, he grew up in solitude and was destined for the church, received a thorough collegiate education, became an honest friar, wore the monk's cowl for years, and yet he adopted silently and unostentiously, or that is not with any loudness or pomp, the principles of the Protestant Reformation. He was suddenly and unexpectedly called at St. Andrew's by the unanimous voice of his brethren to the preaching of the word and the defense of their religious liberties. So he, he reads the word, he's conformed by the word, his mind is transformed to the reformational doctrines, and he's called to this church. After a brief struggle with himself, yielded to the call. He nobly threw himself into the breach at the hazard of his life. He attacked papal idolatry with unsparing vigor, was seized by the authorities, and sent a prisoner to France in 1547, where he worked in the galleys as a slave. But evermore maintaining his lofty courage and cheerful hope, was set at liberty two years afterwards, preached in England in the time of Edward VI. He refused the bishopric from the best of kings, retired to Europe at the ascension of Mary, Mary Tudor, 
residing chiefly at Geneva and Frankfurt, returning to Scotland in 1555, labored with indomitable perseverance to establish Protestantism. He rebuked the great for immorality, profaneness, and greed, and succeeded in greatly strengthening the cause of truth and freedom. He did finally see Protestantism triumph in Scotland, and he died in 1572, so poor that his family had scarce sufficient to bury him. But with the universal love and homage of his countrymen, a conscience void of offense and a hope full of immortality, he had a sore fight of an existence, wrestling with popes and principalities in defeat, contention, lifelong struggle, rowing as a galley slave, wandering as an exile, a sore fight, but he won it. Have you hope? They asked him in his last moments when he could no longer speak. He lifted his finger and pointed upwards, and so he died. Here in the life of John Knox, we see the helmet of salvation worn from its reception from Christ to its alleviating of Christ. Pointing upwards, saying that his hope is found not in anything that he had accomplished, but found in Christ alone. One commentator says that the hope of the Christian has to do with better things than those which are confined within the bounds of time or which derive their value solely from the estimate put upon them by a mere groveling earthly mind. But the hope of the believer stands on a firmer basis, rises higher, takes hold of better comforts, and speeds on the footsteps of the pilgrim soldier with the prospect of far brighter joys to come far brighter joys to come than that mere common principle which cheers universal humanity on its march from the cradle to the grave. We must have a clear view of a future world and in the full expectation of a blessed immortality that we may, with this in view, with this helmet upon our heads, ask what difficulty can discourage us? What temptation can divert us? What danger can deter us from the religious life? Brothers and sisters, our hope is one day to doff the helmet of salvation and receive the fullness of our Savior. But until then, it protects our minds from such despair to suggest to us that we are not accepted by God because of our failings and our inconsistencies. It protects us and reminds us that we wear a helmet worn by one who was perfect, one who suffered all that was necessary to suffer for our salvation. And so we, with the hymn writer, Proclaim that before the throne of God above, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we give you praise this morning that 
you have cladded us in armor that is suitable for our state, for we are but dust. And so we give you praise that this armor protects us from all the wiles of the devil, of this world, and even of our flesh. We give you praise that you have given us a helmet of salvation to remind us that we suffer not for our salvation, but also that one day our suffering will cease. For our hope lies in Christ. Our hope and our treasure is unseen in the age to come. Give us this hope renewed daily. Strengthen our faith to trust in it, to remind ourselves of how we are clad so that we may stand firm in that day. We thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we...